fourth anniversary of our church. How many people here this morning were there that morning? Anybody? There's one, two, three, okay. We're the faithful remnant. <laughs> left from the great tribulation of the last 34 years. But we actually started on a Sunday morning, the 9th of September of the day, and the month felt the same time as they did this, uh, this year. And God has done so many things. Because we started on the second Sunday of September, and children had just gone back to school the week before, as they did this year, we uh, have always kind of started our church year with our church anniversary. And this morning we're doing that as well, starting a new series that uh, Paul and I are going to preach through on the life of Joseph that's found in uh, Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And this morning, rather than just jumping into chapter 37 and thinking about Joseph's uh, technicolor dream coat that comes up in that chapter, uh, I thought we'd start with sort of an overview. And you can think of this as a little bit of a mixture of a Bible class with some preaching. And I'm going to do it in three stages, like uh, a telescope, looking at the whole message of the Bible briefly, and then the naked eye looking at Genesis, and then a microscope focusing in just on the last few chapters that deal with the life of Joseph. There are a number of ways of understanding the message of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible, and most common probably is the theme of creation, fall, and redemption. And that is true descriptively of how the Bible unfolds. The only problem is it's not particularly... Um, geared to the contents of the Bible in that creation is the first two chapters and the fall is the third chapter of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, the vast uh, majority of it is redemption. So even though it's correct, it's not the most helpful way, but I prefer to think of the Bible story as having bookends. It starts and lands in the same place. Creation is the first part of the Bible, the first three chapters, And then the new creation is the last two or three chapters of the Bible. And the storyline moves from the creation to the new creation. And in between is the story of redemption. The Bible unfolds that story of redemption in a series of covenants. And I know covenant is not a word we use a lot today, but covenant is a word still used to describe marriage, at least in legal terms. A covenant is like a legal description or formal relationship between two parties that involves mutual obligations on both sides, as well as benefits and penalties that might be connected with it. And ancient theologians uh, said in in the Westminster Confession, I think it is chapter 7, it begins with, even though God calls us to know him, the distance between God and human beings is so great that we could never understand him. We could never come into relationship with him unless God condescended, unless he stepped down to our level, and he did that by means of a covenant framework. So a covenant describes a relationship and how God opens himself up to relationship with human beings. And the Bible unfolds in a series of covenants that uh, are found, and we're not going to look at those covenants this morning, but I want to note that the first three of the Bible's covenants are found in the book of Genesis. And it does help to give some structure uh, to the Bible. There is first what is called the creation covenant. That's the first couple of chapters. And then after that, there is the covenant with Noah, 
And then the covenant with Abraham begins in in Genesis chapter 12 and actually goes until uh, in the book of Exodus chapter 19. But let me start with the first one. The covenant of creation is an arrangement of God with Adam and Eve in the garden, defining the kind of relationship that he intends to have with them. The first three chapters of Genesis sketch this out in some detail when they are read very carefully. I call this uh, the subject here vocation, and what I mean is it gives what the human purpose is, why God created human beings, why he placed us on this planet. It defines God's purpose in creation. And essentially, God's purpose was for humans to rule. And not only to rule over the creation, but to serve as priests from the garden temple that Eden was. And they were to progressively expand, be fruitful and multiply, and they were to fill the earth, subduing the chaos of the earth to make the whole world an Eden. That was the intention of God from the beginning. The story of the Bible and the creation covenant is that we broke the standards of the covenant in Genesis chapter 3. That's what the fall is. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how God remedies the fall and completes his original intention in the new heavens and the new earth, which is called a new creation. That's the first covenant. It's kind of basic to the Bible story. It's the starting and ending point of the Bible. It's the reason why, in the end, those who are redeemed, who populate the new heavens and the new earth, are called kings and priests. It's because Adam and Eve were rulers and priests in a garden temple, as they're described in the beginning of the story. Now, that is followed by what is called the covenant with Noah. And the covenant with Noah is the first time that the word covenant occurs. It's not used in the first few chapters of the Bible. However, we know that there was a covenant between God and Adam for two reasons. One is that in the book of Hosea, much later in the prophets, he refers to the covenant with the first man in the garden. And uh, so it clearly was a covenant, but also we know for this reason. In the covenant with Noah, it uses a word that is, always describes the establishment of a previously existing covenant, either to establish it formally or to uphold that it's still in force. And that's what happens with Noah. When God speaks to Noah, he doesn't say, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. He says, I'm going to establish the covenant with you. And what he establishes or upholds is the creation covenant. So in a sense, what the covenant with Noah is, it's God saying, okay, even though human beings have fallen into sin and rebelled against me, I am going to fulfill my original intention. Now, what he does is he first cleanses the earth, kills everything on the earth except Noah and his three sons and their wives. And then, starting as though we're a new Adam, he begins to replenish the earth. But in the creation, in the covenant with Noah, he upholds the covenant of creation. And what he says is, I'm going to preserve the created order of the earth until I fulfill the promise. Now, in order to understand that, we need to go back to the key point in the creation covenant that is called the promise. It's found in Genesis chapter 3.15. I've referred to this many times, but let me just note it for you again. It's interesting that when the first two fall into sin and God comes with oracles of curse, he technically doesn't curse the man and the woman. He curses their sphere of responsibility in life, but he does curse the serpent who represents Satan. And when he places a curse on the serpent, 
he says something that is astounding. It's a, the second verse in that little part in Genesis chapter 3. And here's what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there's much we could look at here. I just want to look at it in a cursory manner. Um, He says to the serpent, there's going to be continual enmity between you and your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And uh, what we find in the book of Genesis is those two seeds, that's a word that is used literally for offspring, they flow through the book of Genesis. There are those who trust in God, the offspring of the women. There are those who fail to trust in God, the offspring of the serpent. And they are in constant and bitter enmity through the book of Genesis and through the rest of the book. But in this promise, essentially what God says is, there will arise a male descendant, Offspring can be plural and is in many, many times and in many ways. But in the second half, he says, he, singular, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The bruising of the head is an idiom that refers to a crushing blow that kills someone, like a man might step on a snake and crush its head. The bruising of the heel is an idiom for a non-fatal blow, like a serpent might strike at the heel of a person and deal them a very painful blow, but not one that kills them. And that's the idea here. A descendant of the woman will arise who will destroy the serpent and reverse the curse. It's that promise that is upheld in the covenant with Noah. The covenant with Noah is interesting is that it's not two-sided. It's not like any other covenant in the Bible. There isn't anything for human beings to do. God doesn't say, I'm going to do this as long as you believe, obey, are faithful, worship me. Nothing like that. There are no conditions. God says, I will do this. It's the only truly unconditional covenant in the Bible. It's the only one in which God says, I will. And what he says, I will do, is he says, I will maintain the order that I have created until the promise is fulfilled. I know that I have just cleansed the earth, but I'm never going to do that again. I will never destroy the earth again. As long as the created order exists, I'm going to keep it in moving until the uh, promise is fulfilled. That's why it says at the end of chapter 8 in Genesis, God says to Noah, after the flood when he comes out of the ark, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. That's God's promise to all of us, to all human beings, all creatures. And then what happens is God enters into a covenant with Abraham, a person named Abraham, beginning in chapter 12 of the Bible. And what God does at this point is he takes the promise and he narrows it about 2000 BC to one man living in modern day Iraq. One person named Abraham, a pagan person. He calls him to himself and he says, I want you to go down to this land. He would have to travel from where Iraq is now down uh, into Palestine where Jerusalem is now. And uh, essentially in that covenant, God identifies the family through whom you will fulfill the promise. One family, the descendants of one person in the Middle East in 2000 BC becomes the heir of the promise. Two things occur. There are like two aspects of the whole story of the covenant with Abraham. 
First, God takes that simple promise, a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. He takes that promise and he now expands it. He explains how it's going to happen and it essentially is going to happen in three ways. There are three aspects to the promise with Abraham. They're usually put under the rubric seed, land, and blessing. He promises Abraham you will have numerous descendants. At one point he takes him out of his tent, says, look at the stars of the sky. You can think with no lights in the ancient world, the darkness in the Middle East. He'll look up at the sky. If you can count the stars of the sky, God says to Abraham, you can count your descendants. You will have a multitude of descendants beyond human ability to number. Numerous offspring. He's going to be given a specific geographical territory. That is the land that that was later called Canaan, what we now call Palestine, the region where Israel and Jordan are at the present time. This is what he said he was going to give to him, but when Abraham went there, he didn't have any of it. He lived as an alien in that territory for a number of generations before they got the land. And then blessing. The third thing said to Abraham is, I will bless you. But he also says, in you or through you and through your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is, worldwide blessing was going to come through the descendants of this one man. The promise and the fulfillment by this person would arise, who is the seed of the woman, was going to involve numerous offspring, geographical territory, and worldwide blessing. That's the first thing. The second aspect of the the, uh, covenant with Abraham, I've already kind of stated, that is that the promise isn't only expanded, but the line is narrowed. Now it will be one person the descendants of one person who must maintain their ethnic and religious integrity, and that's why they became a great nation and they were given worship and relationship with God under the next covenant that we won't be looking at, that that narrows the line to the descendants of Abraham. Now, what happens is you have uh, a very slow number of generations where not much happens, and it goes this way. Abraham has given these tremendous promises. You will have a multitude of descendants. But he's getting old, and nothing has happened. He and his wife, Sarah, have no children. How is he going to have a multitude of descendants if he doesn't have one child? So Sarah concocts a plan, and the plan is, I'll tell you what, I want you to take my maidservant and take her as like an alternate wife. And if she becomes pregnant and has a son, she could, that son can be born on my knees. That's a Hebrew idiom. And it probably was literal. It was meant that child would be counted as mine. And it may very well be that the woman in childbirth, the adopting mother, would kneel before the woman giving childbirth and actually receive the child out of the womb onto her knees. Very symbolic. This is my child. As though this child was born of me, between my knees, not this other woman's knees. So... um, They have a child. The child is named Ishmael. But God comes back and he says, that wasn't my intention. I I meant when I said that the the child you will will bear will come from your loins, your plural. I meant you and your wife, Sarah. I didn't mean you and Sally or anybody else. So God says it's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael, in the next generation. But there's only one son. Isaac goes on. He marries Rebekah. And uh, who happens to be a niece of Sarah. And um, am I right with that? No, I'm not. Never mind, I said that. And um, 
Maybe. Anyways, uh, marries Rebecca, and again, they have two children. Now, she bears twins, Esau, the oldest, and Jacob. And God says in the story, it's not going to be Esau. He won't carry on the promise. Only one of these sons will, and that's going to be Jacob. Now, you're in the third generation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and there's still only one child carrying the promise. If that continues on, it's you're not going to get to a multitude. You're going to get to one. And so what happens in the next generation is Jacob, who is renamed Israel by God, has a multitude of sons. He has 12 sons. He has them by two sisters. Now, my wife has four sisters, and uh, no one needed to tell me that it's not a good idea to marry two sisters. Like, I thought that was self-evident, but apparently uh, Jacob didn't get the message, and so he, he, he married two sisters. Actually, he was cheated into it uh, by his father-in-law, who gave him the older daughter first when he thought he was getting the younger daughter whom he loved, Rachel. And, and then after he married Leah, he said, I still want to marry the younger daughter, so he got her as well. And then you have the birth of the 12 sons. Now, if you ever wonder, what does this man do all week? I mean, all I see on Sunday morning, he comes up and, you know, speaks a little bit. Well, I do stuff like this. I write out charts and when I'm reading the Bible, you know. So this one I actually came up with about 20 years ago. I was reading through and I thought, I'm going to put these sons in order. How, what order were they born in? So here's what happened. He marries these two women and Leah immediately becomes pregnant. In fact, she has four sons in rapid fire, and uh, Rachel is barren. She does not become pregnant. Obviously, she's upset about this. And so Rachel says, you know, um, Jacob's grandmother had a pretty good idea with this maidservant thing. So what I'll do is I'll give Jacob the servant who was given to me by my father on the day of my marriage, Bilhah, excuse me, uh, yeah, Bilhah, and uh, he can... She can bear children on my knees. Again, he uses that phrase. And I'll adopt them. They'll be my sons. So Bilhah becomes pregnant twice, has Don and Naphtali. And uh, then Leah says, well, I'm not getting pregnant now. I mean, nothing's happening here. So I'll do the same thing. She gives her maidservant Zilpah. She bears two children, God and Asher. And they are adopted. They're part of the sons of Jacob. And uh, then Leah becomes pregnant. Interesting story behind that. But you can read it on your own. And, And she bears two more sons. Now there's ten sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And finally, after all these years, Rachel, the the wife whom he loved and originally wanted to marry, she becomes pregnant, bears a son named Joseph. And then they leave the land. They've gone up. He's met these girls up back up in Iraq, present day. And they leave, and they escape from his father-in-law, and he takes all of his flocks and his herds and his sons, and they go down into the land back where he had come from originally, where his father still lives. And uh, when they go back there, Rachel is pregnant, and she gives birth during the journey, and she dies in childbirth. She names the son that is born Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But her husband, though he is grief-stricken, he names the child uh, Ben-Yamin, which means son of my right hand, like the most important one I've had. He's the youngest one, the younger reminds the one who reminds him of his beloved wife and all of that. So, so what we've done is we've had these sons, but I put Joseph in red because Joseph becomes the key person 
you know, Genesis is just kind of a side. It structures itself in a real unique way. It's divided by these ten times that it uses a phrase, uh, these are the generations of. The word is toledot, and it's usually called the ten toledots. These are the toledot of. And it means this is what happened to. So, for example, in chapter 2, the first time it occurs after creation, it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And it means this is what happened to the creation of the heavens and earth. And what you read is the story of Adam and Eve. They're the ones that is covered at that time. Then it comes, these are the generations of Noah. And it doesn't, well, actually, there's a generation of Adam, but these are the generations of Noah. And it doesn't tell about Noah. It tells about Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons, and how they go out and populate the earth over generations. These, chapter 11, are the generations of Terah. This is what happened to Terah. Terah was the father of Abraham. Tells the life story of Abraham. When you come to chapter 37, which Paul will open next week, it will start with the words in chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. And it's going to tell the story of what happened to Jacob, what followed on from him, and it's told the story of the 12 sons. But essentially, it says these are the, story, these are the generations of Jacob, and the next word is Joseph. And it begins to tell you about Joseph. So the story is about the 12 sons, but it's really about Joseph and his brothers. Now, why is this significant? Well, it's significant, and actually, if, if you want to really think that you're getting your money's worth here, this is like the first of, of 30 of these that I've made. Because what I've done in my personal devotions is, is I've read through the Bible. Every place I've come to where the 12 tribes are listed, I put them in the order that they're listed and try to figure out why they're listed that way. Because sometimes they're listed in the order of their birth. Sometimes they're listed just the sons of the true wives first and the others put last. There's all kinds of reasons why they're listed in certain ways. And Genesis lays the foundation for all of it. Genesis 37 through 50 is like the foundation for understanding how the Old Testament flows. Because it tells you, for example, this. Reuben is the, the right of the firstborn. He was the firstborn son. The right is taken away from him. Because of an act of immorality, Jacob, when he gives words over his sons, blessings they're called, in which he states, here's what's going to happen to you in the latter days. He says, Reuben, you're unstable and you will not inherit. Now, he still inherits. He's one of the 12 sons. But in the ancient world, the firstborn son would get a double portion of the father's goods. So, for example, if there are 12 sons, they would take the full estate of the father, divide it into 13 parts, and two of them would go to the firstborn son. And then the others all shared one thirteenth. That was the birthright, it was called. And what we find out is that uh, there are reasons why the first four, are the right of firstborn is taken away from them, and it goes to Joseph. Joseph gets the right to inherit a double portion. We even know how it happens from the book of Genesis. What happens is at the end of the book, when uh, Jacob, before he blesses all of his children, he blesses the two sons of Joseph. They're called Ephraim and Manasseh. And he has them come in, and he places a blessing upon them. And at that time, he formally adopts them as his own children. And they take, the two of them, the portion that was for Joseph. That's why, in the end, there are 13 tribes, because Joseph becomes 
Ephraim and Manasseh. However, there's not 13, there's only 12 because one of them, Levi, doesn't inherit the land. So when they get to the land, there are 12 tribes and the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, each get a portion of land or in other words, the double portion of the inheritance. It's all laid in the book of Genesis, but Judah, we find, gets the blessing. That is, he is the one with the right to carry on the promise. The seed who will crush the head of the serpent will come out of Judah, we're told in Genesis 49. Levi becomes the priesthood. So all of these things become insignificant, and and you could get caught up in all of that. But what I want you to know is that the last part of the Bible is the story of Joseph. Now, it's Joseph and his brothers, and it lays the foundation for the tribes and the development of the nation and all of that that's going to come later. But at the end of the book, there's just 70 people counting the 12 sons, their wives and their children, and Jacob. They go down into Egypt to escape a famine, and that's where the book ends. The the story of Joseph ends at the end of the book. His father dies. His father is buried, as Jody read to us. His brothers become afraid that Joseph will retaliate for things they did to him in his youth, like selling him into slavery. He assures them that he's not going to do that. And actually, in the passage after she read, when the book ends in the last paragraph, he even makes the descendants of his brothers, the remaining people, he makes them swear that after he dies, they will take his bones and they will put them in a box called an ossuary, and they will keep that box so that when, 400 years in the future, they return to the land of Palestine that God promised to give to them, they will take his bones to Palestine and bury them there. He doesn't want to be buried in Egypt, but the book ends. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The last word in the book is Egypt, not Palestine, not the promised land. Far from it. Now, Genesis is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises. So Abraham's promised many descendants, and now you have 70. That's how the book ends, and that's how Exodus opens. He he was promised that he would be a blessing to the whole world, and you've had glimmers of that. Uh, For example, through Joseph, Pharaoh and Egypt were greatly blessed. They were saved from famine. But that's not the blessing of all the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham. But it's kind of a foreshadowing of it. And the land, they don't have it at all. They just have it by faith that even Joseph at the end of his life says, I don't want to be buried here. I want my bones to be buried in the promised land. But what did Joseph say to them? When they came to him, the brothers, and they said they were afraid that he might retaliate against them, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, I have to tell you, that statement, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, the first half is self-evident in what you've read up to that point. The second half isn't. The reader, reading for the first time, as she reads through the book, she is not aware that God has been superintending everything that happens until the point when Joseph says... God meant it for good. It's obvious that they intended all kinds of things they did against Joseph for evil, and that evil also accompanied him in other experiences there in Egypt, but that God is the one who orchestrated it all to work out the way that he did. That is not self-evident. That's not stated. When they sell him into slavery, um, and he's carried off by this marauding band of slave traders, the text doesn't say Joseph said, 
Praise the Lord. It's all going to work out great in the end. Don't worry about it. God's in charge. He doesn't tell you anything like that. You have no idea what he's thinking inside. Now, he is evidently a person of integrity, but the text doesn't even really tell you why he's such a person of integrity, except in a few glimpses. We're not much given insight into those kinds of things. The text doesn't tell us when you read Genesis what God is doing at the different points. What you see is at the end. You look back and you say, oh, God was in charge the whole time. God was working through even the evil actions of wicked people to accomplish his purposes in the end. God meant it for good, specifically, Joseph says, the saving of many people, numerous people, just like the promise to Abraham, numerous descendants, many people being kept alive from famine here in Egypt. Now, what does that teach us? You know, modern life teaches us in so many ways to expect quick and clear resolution of all of our problems. If you think about it, we are most impacted in terms of time that we spend by television and movies and visual things like that. One thing about television and movies is that you expect when you watch a program that you're going to see resolution in the period of time that the show is on. If it's a 30-minute show, which has about 22 minutes of programming, it's going to present a problem, a tension point, and then resolve the problem by the end of the story. The person who committed a crime is going to be caught and put in jail, and you're going to feel like all the loose ends are wrapped up by the end of the story. If it's a three-hour movie, they give you three hours. If they decide that they're going to now on Netflix put on a show that runs for multiple times, you still know that in that show, every week there's going to be tension and resolution, but there's going to be larger problems that are still being dealt with until you come to the end of the whole series. We're taught that in so many ways that our problems should be quickly resolved. But we all know, and the older you are, the more you know it, life over time compels us to accept that such is not the case. Our lives are not filled with quick resolution of our problems. We find as time goes on that we struggle with certain things. Maybe when you're in your 20s, you begin to realize, I struggle with anger, resentment, depression, whatever it is. And so you start to work on that, and you talk to people, and you read books. But what you find out over a period of time is now you're aware of it, Now you can face it more openly. You can learn to deal with it. Those are all good things. But you learn that no amount of self-talk, self-improvement, self-guidance is going to completely eradicate some of the things you deal with in life. You're going to find that even as you get older, some of those things keep cropping up in ways that bother you, like, why haven't I figured this out by now? Life does not offer to us quick resolution of deep things. We experience relational problems with other people, and they aren't tied up quickly and easily. Sometimes, even if they move towards resolution, the resolution itself may be something like the end of the relationship that bears lasting scars that never quite heal. Life simply doesn't work the way television presents it. It doesn't offer us quick solutions. And we aren't comfortable not only with quick solutions, but when they aren't clear. You know, at the end of a television program, you want something to tell you that the people who were guilty all were dealt with in some way. Maybe this one went to jail, but this one died, and and this one got sent out of the country, or whatever it is. You you don't want to go home thinking, wait a minute, 
this guy got it, but what about all those other people? They, they were problematic too. We don't like it when there's not clear resolution. Life has a way of teaching us that resolution is not always so clear. Things aren't tied up in a nice little bow. Now, what's the story of Joseph here, and what's he saying? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God, it means, overruled, ultimately, human plans to accomplish his purposes. That will become the storyline of the whole Bible. He's really only stating that that is true in one individual small way, and that is, in my life, he says to his brothers, and in your lives, God used the evil that you meant for good in preserving our integrity as a family here in the womb of Egypt. And there's nothing like opposition and slavery that they eventually went into to let you know who your friends are that you ought to hang with. So it kept them together as a people. Now, how did God use evil? And how does he use the evil actions of people to accomplish his good purposes without being stained by evil himself? The Bible doesn't answer that question, at least not thoroughly. That's a deep philosophical question. What the Bible does is it assures us that it is the case. That while God weaves in the tapestry of all of history, even the evil, self-chosen acts of wicked people, he weaves them in in such a way to fulfill his ultimate purpose, which is good. And all that we are asked to do is to be faithful, to continue to trust God that he is uh, working out his purposes in our lives. Well, that's what... uh, that's what God wants us to know. You know, this week I was, uh, in addition to making lists of odd things, I, when I work out sometimes, I read on my iPad, you know. So I was running on a treadmill this week, and I was reading. And, and I read stuff that you've all heard of. Like this week I was reading the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. <laughs> and I, I, in the first chapter, the first chapter is called... Um, Holy Scripture, it's about the Bible. And, and I was reading it, and I came to this full paragraph, and I, I had kind of a spiritual experience. It may have been lack of oxygen, I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> I, I just want to note it for you. This, this is on the slides. I don't know if you're going to be able to find it, but it's towards the end. And, and I'll, I'll read it to you. Here's what it said. The testimony of the Church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent respect for the Holy Scriptures. Now, I hope that it does for you. I, what that means is that when you come into church meetings of various kinds, small groups or whatever it is, the testimony of the church, the people of God, ought to let you know that the Bible is really an important book. So that's why we read the Bible in every service. Uh, we, we post Bible verses in our children's rooms and we talk about it. It's God's book. It's, it's God's word written down for us. And the testimony of the church speaks to people and says, here's what you ought to pay attention to, this book, this revelation from God. Then it goes on. It says, moreover, the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style. Now, let me stop there. I've always been a big reader, but I didn't read the Bible till I was in high school. I read the New Testament. And then after I came to faith in Christ, my first year in college, I began to read the Bible a lot. Now, I've always read a lot. I've read novels. I I love to read novels. I've read all kinds. And uh, I find as I get older, I read fewer of them. 
than I used to. And it's not because I think they're wrong or evil or something like that. It's because I've come to realize that the Bible's story is the ultimate story. It's like so fascinating to me that any novel can only be a dim reflection of the ideas that are found in the Bible. And, and so I found myself less less attracted by them. The whole reason that we think of plot line and harmony and tension and build up and resolution and all those kinds of things is because the Bible is here. The Bible is the ultimate story. And, and I've begun to experience that after 45, 46 years of reading through it. So it says, um, the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of style, the harmony of all the parts. And I have to tell you, that's what it is. Those are the things that have impacted me. If you can listen to the testimony of a person after 45 years, that's what's impacted me, particularly the harmony of all the parts. Beginning to see the creation covenant fulfilled in the, in the new covenant and the creation of the new, the new creation. It's like the Bible is a meta story that is extremely complex. But all the individual stories like Joseph are just parts of this overall narrative that tells us God's purposes, everything that he wants us to know. Every human life fits into the Bible's story in some way. The harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence that the scriptures are the word of God. That's a great, that's a great summary of how wonderful the Bible is but I want you to note the next word, even so. That means but. The whole point of the confession is, but that's not enough. No one should accept the Bible simply because the church says it's great, simply because individuals have said it's great. They've experienced all these things, having this, this style, harmony, the parts of life. No one should do that. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the words in our hearts. And here's what happened to me when I was 18. People started talking to me in my dorm about Jesus and about the Bible. And I had gone to church quite a bit. I was kind of a religious guy, and, and I'd read a little bit of the Bible. And, and they kept telling me about things, and some of this I hadn't heard before. They said that the Bible told me about God, and it told me what God wanted from me, and mostly it told me that I could find in Jesus Christ, if I trusted him, the forgiveness of sins. And so someone said, if you want to really read the Bible, start in the Gospel of John and start reading there, because that's the one that's mostly about the Gospel, and then read from there through the end. And then go back and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's what I did, just because I was too stupid to say no. And so I started there. And and I'm reading the Gospel of John, and and I I can't tell you the whole story, but I have to tell you, I realize what these people are saying is true. That Jesus says, if I trust him, I have eternal life, forgiveness of sins. I had come to the point where I was seeing that I wasn't going to be able to clean up my act on my own. I, I wasn't a horrible person, but I knew that I knew that there were things I couldn't control and, and, and things that just weren't going in the direction that I wanted them to, and, and I wasn't sure how I was going to deal with that. And, and I began to see I wasn't going to be able to clean it up on my own. Only Jesus could clean it up. I could only look to him. And I'll never forget the, the moment I trusted him. And it's not, for me, it was not even an emotional experience. It was more, frankly, an intellectual experience. It was like a light went on. And I understood, oh, it's Jesus. It's what Jesus did for me. 
Now, since then, I've gone on, I've read the Bible. And, and, and the first time it took me three years, I read one chapter a day until I finished. And, and now I'm down to like seven or eight months. I read through it in a certain pattern, start over, and I've done that for 45 years. But um, do you know why I believe the Bible? It's not because the church tells me it's important. It's not because other people have told me. It's not because professors convince me of certain things. It's not even because of the harmony of all the parts, as amazing as that is. I read the Bible because I found forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Because that's what it says here. It's from the full persuasion, our assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit. Because I felt the power of its words working their way into my heart and out of my life in a different direction. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. We live in an age where people do not read. They cannot read. Read the Bible. Start with the life of Joseph. We'll start talking about it next week. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God and Father, we praise and thank you that you are a God of infinite holiness, and yet you have spoken to us clearly. You've not left us to our own in this fallen world, that we might, as so many, just try to make our way through figuring out what culture wants to do at the present time, what the world says is important at the present time, but looking to you and listening to your voice. Teach us your way. Make us a church in which we learn your way, and we call others to follow you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.